guest today is Peter Stanley from the Australian War Memorial in Canberra. Uh, I'm being slightly formal in my introductory remarks because these uh, sessions are now being uh, recorded. There is a sound archives uh, for British studies. I actually want to begin uh, by pointing out that Don Davis is now the recipient of a Festschrift, which has been published by the Library of Congress and is a beautiful uh, production. I'll pass it around so you, everyone will be aware of Don Davis's uh, accomplishment. Uh, the subject this afternoon is the fall of uh, Singapore, one of the most controversial episodes in British history, if for no other reason that Singapore was the greatest one of the greatest, if not the greatest, military defeats in British history. And it is especially interesting to be able to hear the Australian uh, perspective on all of this for reasons that will become clear. Uh, the introduction to the speaker will be given by Dr. Roby Barrett. I uh, emphasize the, uh, uh, the prefix doctor because he is a recent recipient of a uh, University of Texas PhD and breaking a modern record. His dissertation weighed in at over a thousand pages. It had the distinction of being the longest dissertation ever written in the Department of History at the University of Texas. <laughs> Roby will introduce the speaker. Would you stand? Um, all of you subsequent graduate students with that 350 page limit you can send your contributions to McKinney, Texas, you know, because I'm responsible for it. Um, Peter and I have known each other for several years. We met in most unusual circumstances uh, as, I won't call it the black hole of Calcutta, but it was something like a New Delhi purgatory called the Indian National Archives when we were both digging in the, uh, in the archives doing research. And my frustration was mounting because I had decided I just didn't understand the system. And I saw this other person over there who spoke English and looked like the only other gringo there. So I would ask him, you know, how Peter had lots of experience in the archives. And uh, we got to talking. He said, no, no, this is just how it works. Uh, it's very difficult. Whatever you want, you can't have. And, uh, and, uh, and so... Uh, Peter, then I, we struck up a conversation, and I said, well, what do you do for lunch? This happens to be the bravest man I know. He said, I eat in the cafeteria. I said, what cafeteria? He said, the cafeteria in the archives, and which gave me a start. And I said, you have got to be kidding. And he said, what are you doing for lunch? I said, why don't we go down to the Imperial down the street, and I'll buy. Uh, so uh, so uh, from there... I found out that Peter was the principal historian at the uh, Australian War Memorial. He was on his way back to Canberra. I was on my way to Canberra, delayed by about three weeks beyond him, because my daughter was a uh, fellow at ANU. And uh, so we struck up a friendship. We got together several times there. And I said, you know, you really need to come to British studies if you get an opportunity and uh, give it, uh, because I think it would fit in perfectly with the theme and I think you'd really enjoy it. So he's been in Texas for a week. We, I've been giving him a tour of the state and, uh, and here he is. Peter is, um, his family immigrated to Australia um, more than 40 years ago, 45 years ago, 45 years ago, 
And Peter got his undergraduate degree at the Australian National University, and as he says, he was going to teach high school and decided that was a very bad idea, so he got a job with the government. From there, he has been at the archives for 20, I mean, at the memorial for 27 years. The memorial is, is a unique institution in Australia. It combines the Smithsonian, the uh, military museums, uh, and uh, the American History Museum, if you will, uh, for Australia. It won, it, it, it was so consistent at winning the Best Museum in Australia award that they made them quit competing uh, and so that someone else might win it. And Peter has been there since for 27 years, and he also, in the process of that promotion cycle of moving up the chain there, got his PhD, which was awarded from the Australian National University in 1993. So I'm going to turn it over to Peter and uh, let him tell us about uh, Singapore, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Roger. Well, colleagues, uh, friends, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. It's a great pleasure to be here in Austin, and I would like to thank Professor Roger Lewis and my friend and colleague, Dr. Roby Barrett, for their great kindness in hosting this visit. And, and I acknowledge the friendship and from all I've encountered in our few days in Texas. Um, whenever Roby has introduced me to somebody this week, almost the first thing someone has said has to express condolences to me for the death, uh, the not unexpected but sad death, of the crocodile man, Steve Irwin. And I, I feel almost like an in, informal uh, condolence ambassador. I should have kept a list and taken it back to present to, to Steve Irwin's people. Um, but I feel, though, that the people somehow expect me to begin uh, my talk by saying, Crikey, mate! And proceed from there. But this afternoon, I do want to talk about uh, other people, uh, other Australians dressed in khaki shirt and shorts, Australian soldiers at the fall of Singapore. And I want to look at some of the ramifications of the fall of Singapore in February 1942 for British-Australian relations in the 21st century. So this really isn't about the fall of Singapore, it's about the significance of Singapore for Australia today. Well, of course, as, as you know as well as I do, Singapore's conquest by the Japanese became the defining moment in the collapse of the European empires in Southeast Asia and beyond. After the defeat at Singapore, the rule of the Saabs or the Masters or the Tuans or the Buanas was doomed. The colonial masters' defeat became the catalyst for Malaysian, for Indian, Singaporean nationalists who achieved Medeca or independence in the following decades. But Singapore's fall has also become a symbol for a European settler society, Australia, that was already apparently an independent dominion in 1942 in Australia's changing view of and relationship with the imperial power. So I'm interested in this question, the significance of Singapore for Australia, Australia and the way it looks at its history today, um, because of who I am and what I'm doing. So allow me to introduce both. And can I apologise for my voice? I, I had a cold when I arrived, and although it's got better, it, I, it, it still is affecting me. So if you can't hear at the back, please wave and shout and ask me to speak up. Now the institution, as Roby said, the institution which I've worked for for 20 odd years, uh, 27 years, the Australian War Memorial, is unique among the world's war memorials. Unlike, say, the eternal flame under the Arc de Triomphe or the Cenotaph in London or the tombs of unknown soldiers at Arlington, the Australian War Memorial isn't just a shrine. It was conceived during the Great War, in fact exactly 90 years ago this month, as a memorial that commemorated the dead by being a museum, an archive, a library, 
and a centre of research. And of course, it's as, as a centre of research where I come in. As its principal historian, I head a section of about a dozen historians who document and interpret Australia's experience of war, from European settlement in 1788 up to the involvement of Australian forces in peacekeeping deployments and in the current wars in Iraq and Afghanistan today. And we do this, we interpret and document in a number of ways. We create museum displays, we write official histories, uh, we speak and publish informally in all sorts of areas, including my section is responsible for the official history of peacekeeping operations from 1947, um, and that's being written by several of my staff working in conjunction with colleagues from the Australian National University. But I am uh, not particularly interested in peacekeeping operations because I'm a pre-1945 specialist. Um, as Roby suggested, I've published on Australia's involvement in war from the colonial period to the end of the Second World War. And while the ostensible subject of much of my, of my work has been military operations, research on Gallipoli, on the war in North, North Africa, Borneo, the Pacific War generally, again and again my research comes back to that engine of Australian 20th century history, nationalism. Australia's great project in the 20th century was the formation of a sense of national identity. And from Gallipoli, via the Western Front, Tobruk and Singapore, War has been crucial to this process. Again and again, Australians come back to thinking about their national identity by reflecting on their experience in war. Now, this national identity in Australia in the 20th century has traditionally been expressed in relation to Britain, a fact which explains the centrality of Singapore to this continuing process of redefinition and reaction. Ultimately, the nationalist reaction, which I'll discuss, would propel Australia out of a British world Indeed, if those who see Singapore in Australian nationalist terms prevail, Australia's only relevance to British studies soon will be historical. Now, Singapore is central, I think, in two ways. First, the experience of participating in British wars as a colony, as a self-governing dominion, and as an increasingly assured independent nation has shifted Australia's perceptions of itself and of Britain. The failure of British strategy in Southeast Asia in 1942 jolted many Australians out of their complacent acceptance of that imperial relationship. Now, the extent of that change can be debated, but it seems more significant today than it did in 1942. The second implication of Singapore is that Australian writers, in looking back on 1942, have used Singapore as a fulcrum on which to leave their own perception of Australia's independence from Britain. The preeminent advocate of this is Professor David Day of La Trobe University in Melbourne. Um, He's published several books, uh, The Great Betrayal, The Politics of War, uh, and, and his views have been echoed and elaborated by popular writers. So th and they essentially espouse what I would describe as a retrospective nationalist view, and it's now dominant in Australian academic and popular historical circles. The fall of Singapore, as the Australian Prime Minister John Curtin said on the very next day, signalled the start of what he called a battle for Australia. And that phrase, battle for Australia, I think has become crucial, not just in understanding 1942, but even more in understanding our view of 1942. So John Curtin in February 1942 talks about the opening of a battle for Australia. And I think we need to be quite clear about the setting of Curtin's statement. On the 16th of February 1942, he issued a statement which appeared in the newspapers in which he said the fall of Singapore can only be described as Australia's Dunkirk. He foresaw that, that on this battle for Australia, depend, as he said, depends not merely the fate of this, of this Commonwealth, but also the frontier of the United States of America and indeed the fate of the English-speaking world. 
So you can see that John Curtin's view, the Prime Minister's view of the battle to come, he thought the whole fate of the Western world hinged upon the events early in 1942 within the Australian region. This understandable interest, of course, uh, but uh, it was a prediction. And I think it was so wide of the mark that we should immediately recognise it for what it was, a statement in anticipation at a time of grave crisis. John Curtin looked forward to an event that he feared would occur. In fact, as it turned out, there was no battle for Australia in any meaningful sense. It was not adopted as a battle honour. It was not identified by the official historians in periodising the events that they chronicled. It wasn't used at all in the historical discourse until the mid-1990s. Well, what did happen in Australia in 1942? Well, the Japanese bombed towns and airstrips in northern Australia. They launched a submarine offensive against merchant shipping off the east coast. And they sent a midget submarine raid against US, a US cruiser in Sydney Harbour as part of the diversionary strategy for the Battle of Midway in late May 1942. But except for those, and we have to regard them as minor incursions, Japanese forces made no move against mainland Australia. The Japanese in the southwest Pacific were defeated in Guadalcanal and in, in Papua New Guinea. Or so we have believed for the past 60 years. That understanding is now altering, at least in Australia. So the phrase, battle for Australia, is increasingly becoming applied to describe the period from early 1942 to about the middle of 1943, when Australia came under the threat of a Japanese invasion. Now it's important to understand that the Japanese did not plan such an invasion. True, Allied commanders didn't know that until about the middle of 1942. But the Japanese did not plan to invade Australia in 1942, and in fact, they decided explicitly against invading Australia. However, the Curtin government used that prospect of imminent invasion to mobilise the country. Uh, Curtin encouraged people to work, to fight, to save. And it was one of the ways in which Australians were mobilised to prepare for this crisis to come. But then, of course, Curtin, MacArthur, senior commanders in Australia, learned that the Japanese, in fact, had decided not to invade. But having banged the invasion drum, epitomised in a propaganda poster, depicting a Japanese soldier striding across the islands towards Australia, uh, labelled, he's coming south. Having promoted this idea so assiduously in early 1942, the Curtin government couldn't then resile from the idea, partly because if they had, the Japanese would have realised that their codes had been compromised. So, while the idea of a Japanese invasion was refuted in the official histories, which appeared during the 1950s, uh, it has now been resurrected as a matter of widely accepted fact. So there's a major revision going on, mostly among popular writers. Indeed, I would argue that this idea that Australia was the, the, uh, the, the target of a Japanese invasion um, has become a new, though quite groundless, orthodoxy. Well, the ultimate endorse, endorsement, of course, comes from Wikipedia, which is... <laughs> which, like you, I use all the time. And it informs readers that the battle for Australia was a series of battles fought in 1942 and early 1943 to defend Australia against Japanese attack. Now, Wikipedia's anonymous correspondent, a contributor, at least had the grace to acknowledge that, unlike the Battle of Britain, the battle for Australia involved relatively little fighting over or near the Australian mainland, although it still includes, under that rubric, all operations across northern Australia and Papua New Guinea, but not the mainly American, but even more significant, Guadalcanal campaign. So you can see how Australia's understanding of its wartime past is becoming increasingly parochial. 
Now it's at this point that my current project begins. In the, a book that I'm supposed to be writing called 1942 Battle for Australia, I'll argue that there was no battle for Australia and that the entire interpretation that Australia was under a real threat of invasion has skewed Australia's understanding of the Second World War. I'm using John Curtin's phrase, Battle for Australia, as a metaphor for the battle to capture the Australian historical imagination. Those who espouse the idea that there was a battle for Australia, in my view, impose an unjustifiable retrospective nationalism onto a more complex and ambiguous past. Now, where does Singapore come in? Well, Singapore is central to this argument. The logic goes that, the Australian logic goes that, during the 1920s and 30s, Britain promised Australia that placing its face in, in the Singapore naval base and the Singapore strategy would ensure Australia's security in the expected war with Japan. The consequent British failure to meet that undertaking, because it happened to be engaged in a European war, was seen at the time, in the words of John Curtin's foreign minister, as an inexcusable betrayal. And this phrase, inexcusable betrayal, runs right through the popular literature of Australia and Singapore. Australians feel deeply affronted that their security was jeopardised by Britain's inexcusable betrayal. In later decades, the defeat at Singapore, and with it the capture of 22,000 Australians in Southeast Asia, one in three of whom died in captivity, that defeat is presented as one of the defining moments when Australia recognised that its interests were different to Britain's. Now this is a matter of greater significance for Australian political and cultural historians as, as a whole. It's not just an episode in military history, it's important in the way Australia understands its entire national history in this period. Well, let's briefly look at the historiography before we talk about the evidence. As you know, the Battle for Singapore, the Fall of Singapore, has a rich and robust literature. In 1957, the British and Australian official histories put a formal version. Raymond Callaghan's excellent book, The Worst Disaster, placed it, which is 1977, placed it in the context of the British Empire's failure to meet the range of threats it would face in the Pacific War's greatest crisis. And I wonder whether it's significant that such were the national sensitivities, which I'll talk about in a minute, that it took an American scholar to produce the first comprehensive explanation for the fall of Singapore. Well, by the early 1990s, the 50th anniversary, it became clear that Australian and British writers were taking strongly national lines. The modern Australian nationalist reading of Singapore takes its cue from its most prominent exponent, Paul Keating, who was the Australian Labour Party Prime Minister from 1991 to 1996. This is a key moment in Australia's interpretation of Singapore. Soon after assuming the leadership of the Labour Party and, and the Prime Ministership in December 1991, Keating declared in a seemingly impromptu outburst in Parliament that Britain betrayed Australia at Singapore. He accused Britain of having deserted Australia and denounced the Conservative, Liberal and National parties as British to the bootstraps. They were, he said, the same old fogies who doffed their lids and tugged the forelock to the British establishment. But this was no impromptu outburst because the next day Keating confirmed that he had indeed been quite clear about what he wanted to say. So it was quite a calculated um, interpretation of that episode in Australian history. One of my former students then went on to write a book about prime ministerial rhetoric about Australia's history. And he has dissected John Keating, uh, Paul Keating's speeches. And he observes that there was nothing novel in Keating's irritation over the fall of Singapore and its implications for Australian independence. But it was novel for an Australian prime minister to give voice to that degree of um, uh, anger at Australia's inexcusable betrayal. And James Curran places Keating's 1992 rhetoric 
within an Australian radical nationalist strand of thought that has moved from the Australian-Irish left wing, the margins of Australian politics, increasingly into the mainstream. And as it turns out, not just in the mainstream Labour, but in the mainstream of Australian politics as a whole, as I'll make clear. Indeed, the popular belief that Singapore made a nation, as Keating said, seems to have been accepted universally. It has become a new orthodoxy. And I think the test of this, I could give you many examples, but let me give you one example. A retired army colonel, not known as a, a radical uh, bunch, addressing a meeting of Australians for a constitutional monarchy. So a conservative group concerned to defeat the referendum proposals of 1999, uh, which sought to make Australia a republic, proposals which were defeated. And this retired colonel asked his fellow constitutional monarchists, uh, uh, when, when did nationhood arrive in Australia? And the answer he gave, the answer which they apparently agreed with, was that Singapore was the one defining event that may have thrust nationhood upon us. So Anglo-Australian conservative sentiment is, losing, is fighting a losing battle to this widespread assumption about Singapore. And it's against that general understanding that we need to see the challenge to the growing orthodoxy that emerged after Keating's speech. Back to the historiography. In the succeeding decade, in the decade after the 50th anniversary through the 1990s, scholarship moved on. 2002 saw uh, Alan Warren's book, Singapore 1942. It was written by an Australian, but from a British point of view, and its main uh, contribution was to buck the trend towards national boosting and vilification, which so disfigured the 1992 anniversary. He, he didn't choose to, to pick at the easy targets, you know, insipid Bombay bloomed British colonels. Alan Warren's astringent account devoted special attention to the Indian Army, the largest single element in the British Empire forces, but one that is usually either overlooked or blamed for the defeat. Australians are great blamers, and they essentially blame the Indians for letting the side down at Singapore. Well, Alan Warren didn't accept that. Two years later, Carl Hack and Kevin Blackburn published Did Singapore Have to Fall? And it dealt with Churchill and the, and the impregnable fortress, or the supposedly impregnable fortress. They, too, were not satisfied with simply repeating tired old myths about guns facing the wrong way and pucker saabs taking tiffin in tropical messes. They grappled with the reasons for the Singapore strategy and the realities of defending imperial possessions and allies at a time of growing uncertainty. Very, very much pragmatic account. Well, bookshelves now are full of big books by historians. One of the larger examples is Cameron Forbes's book, Hellfire, published in 2005. And this, this now, I think, defines the Australian popular orthodoxy about Singapore. Cameron Forbes, the author, like many journalist historians, is better at conveying the stories of the individuals involved than explaining the big picture. His account of Churchill and, Curtin, and John Curtin's clash around the time of the fall of Singapore reflects the one-eyed orthodoxy which now prevails in Australia. Forbes puts what's become the conventional Australian view of the Japanese threat in December 1941, and I'll quote a bit from it. In leaving Singapore a false fortress, Britain had undermined Australia's security. The ghost of the Gallipoli blunder walked the Malayan Peninsula. Churchill's sense of proportion was skewed, putting the Mediterranean, the Middle East and Russia ahead of the Pacific. Now, let me declare my hand here by observing that since there was desperate fighting in North Africa and Malta, and not least Russia, in December 1941, German tanks, after all, were in the suburbs of Moscow, that concentration on those theatres, to me, seems reasonably sensible. In December 1941, Australian troops had not even entered action against the Japanese. So Cameron Forbes 
clearly wants to put all the eggs in the Australian basket and really not care about the broader aspects of the conduct of the, war, of the Allied war effort. Contrast Cameron Forbes' rather parochial at, at approach with the, a, another book published by another journalist in the same year, Colin Smith, another marathon storyteller, published Singapore Burning uh, about the same time. Now, Colin Smith's book is also a journalist's history. It's based on deep research and it reads well, especially in telling the stories of those involved. But the point is, it's pretty much even-handed. Singapore Burning won't tell you very much that's new, but its hallmark is that it reflects the growing internationalism of British accounts in contrast to the growing nationalism of Australian works. You can see where I'm going here. I have to notice a couple of, of other serious books so that we can get a complete picture of the historiography of Singapore and talk about Guns of February by the late and, and very much mourned Henry Fry, which was published posthumously in 2004. Now, Henry, Henry was a Swiss who was an authority on Japan's South at advance, as he called it, so no one could accuse him of partiality. For the first time, he was able to evoke the experience, the attitudes, and the feelings of the faceless Japanese soldiers who captured Singapore for the emperor. Fry's book exemplifies the greater subtlety of recent scholarly accounts, which are breaking away from a simple national bias. And I have to notice the Canadian, Brian Farrell, professor in military history at the National University of Singapore, who recently published The Defence and Fall of Singapore, 1940-42. It deals with the experience of all the contending national groups, not just those in the hectic weeks before Japanese tanks rumbled along Orchard Road and into Fullerton Square. But it also deals with the crucial decades or years before the Japanese called Britain's bluff in Asia. Brian Farrell doesn't offer a minute dissection of the vagaries of the Singapore strategy, but he does show how the inescapable realities of a two-front war calls on the fleet in, North, in European waters and a need for a fleet in Asian waters, unable to satisfy both, how those inescapable realities of a two-front war made the successful defence of, of Singapore slide from increasingly unlikely to absolutely impossible. <clears throat> the last scholarly uh, treatment I want to talk about is Christopher Bailey and Tim Harper's Forgotten Armies, The Fall of British Asia, 1941-42 a very recent book, and they canvass the causes, the course, and the consequences of Britain's defeat and recovery in South and Southeast Asia. Their great strength is that they present the story from British perspectives, supposedly British perspectives, but that are not purely white. They integrate the impact of conquest and liberation on indigenous proto-nations, I think I'll call them, of the British Empire, adding dimensions often overlooked in conventional Anglo or Australian-centric accounts. So as you can see, the historiography, the historiography of Singapore is evolving. The battle for Singapore continues, but what I think we can see is a welcome international perspective joining the traditional nationalism of the earlier accounts. Except that national identification and feeling, as exemplified by Cameron Forbes's work, remains central to the Australian reading of Singapore. Popular his nationalist histories like Cameron Forbes make great play of Churchill's supposed betrayal of Australia. Um, now, the 50th anniversary of the surrender in 1992 saw a controversy over, many cl over claims that many Australian soldiers had deserted before the surrender. And those allegations, which are, are crucial to understanding Australia's attitude towards Singapore, will form the substance of my discussion of Singapore and what it now means for Australia. Well, what are these claims of deserters and what is their substance and, and why should Australians be so concerned about them? What's their significance for Australia's sense of national identity and its relationship to India? 
Well, first, some brief historical background for those who may not be entirely familiar with the events of February 1942. The Japanese had attacked Malaya on the 8th of December, actually an hour and 40 minutes before the attack on Pearl Harbor, but a day later because of the international dateline. And as you well know, they advanced swiftly down the Malayan Peninsula, outflanking, demoralizing and defeating British, Indian and in January 1942, Australian troops. By the end of January 1942, they had fallen back onto Singapore Island, which they expected to hold as a fortress, hoping for relief to come. That relief, of course, of course did not come. A week later, in about the 8th of February, the Japanese launched their attack on Singapore Island. They crossed the narrow Johor Strait at night. The important thing is, and something that Australians don't often like people to know, is that the Japanese attacks fell on two Australian brigades holding the northeast sector of the island's defences. Over several days fighting, and, and it was horrific fighting, but they broke through and pushed the Australian defenders towards the city. Once the Japanese reached Singapore Island's reservoirs, there was no water for this large city in a, in a tropical climate, and, and General Arthur Percival, the, the British commander, realised the game was up. So on the 14th of January, he made terms with the Japanese General Yamashita and accepted, uh, 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 accepted an unconditional surrender. The figures, I think, are a bit rubbery, but about 100,000 British Empire troops were surrendered, including 40,000-odd Indians and 15,000 Australians, a humiliation second only to Dunkirk, perhaps more significant for Dunkirk. The prisoners who were captured endured a, a, an appalling captivity, like Americans captured in the Philippines, of course, in which disease, starvation, overwork and uh, brutality and the inadvertent torpedoing of prisoners by American submarines killed one man in three, and more than two in three of the Indians who refused to join the Indian National Army. And I think we must bear in mind the, the ordeal of prisoners of the Japanese colours Australia's understanding of its war in the Pacific. Well, the British, of course, having seen this imperial fortress fall so swiftly, uh, so unexpectedly, sought explanations for the disaster. And in the months after Singapore's fall, British staff officers at New Delhi, the Southeast Asia Command's, well, what became Southeast Asia Command's headquarters, uh, compiled uh, what, was, what became known as the Wavell Report, because uh, Archibald Wavell was the British Commander-in-Chief in Southeast Asia during the campaign. The Wavell Report makes very interesting reading, because it's clearly, uh, it's clearly written with imperfect evidence, and it focuses very much on... I would argue peripheral issues, but one of the things that it, that it identifies was, and I'll quote, large numbers of Australian stragglers were seen in the town, while the events of the night of the 8th, 9th February seem to have destroyed completely their discipline and morale. The Wavell report essentially argued that the Australians had given way and that many Australians, thousands of Australians, had left the front line, had gone back into Singapore town where they became undisciplined, uh, where they became a... Um, um, uh, yeah, they, they made a nuisance of themselves. Now, the problem is, and I'll go on about that later, the Wavell report, though, wasn't seen by Australians at the time, and it lay unseen in the archives, or at least unused by the official historians, until it was revealed 50 years later, when British archives, of course, were opened. The first writer to reveal the existence of the Wavell report was a master mariner turned writer known as Peter Elphick, author of Singapore, The Pregnable Fortress. One of the worst titles I've ever heard, but The Pregnable Fortress. Elphick first exposed these claims to Australian readers early in 1993, uh, although the book 
wasn't actually published until 1995, but it meant that there was ferment about this book in the press for several years. Elphick used the Wavell report to state that, and he said, the Australians did not pull their weight in Singapore. Indeed, he considered that Australians were mainly responsible for Singapore's collapse. Elphick appears to perpetuate those national fissures among writers about the battle, and I think he was taking an essentially British line, an anti-Australian line, and Australians reacted vigorously, as you would, would, you, you would expect. Um, Elphick's claims about what he called the deserter situation aroused, predictably, outrage, denunciation, and denial. Newspapers, both broadsheet and tabloid, and talkback radio hosts especially, hotly contested the veracity of Elphick's claims. A typical headline in the newspapers read, Digger Cowardice Blamed for Defeated Singapore. Digger is the nickname applied to Australian soldiers. And that appeared in the most highbrow of the national newspapers. So you can imagine what the tabloid press made of this. The Canberra Times, which I have to say is a very fine newspaper, headed its story, British Report Brands World War II Diggers, Cowards, Rapists and Looters. So you can see I, I was um, not being honest when I said they made a nuisance of themselves. This was a thorough disgrace, if you believe the Wavell Report. Well, Elphick's book appeared at exactly the same moment as when Paul Keating's nationalist rhetoric was inviting Australians to reconsider the place of Singapore in the conception of national identity. So you can see that two things have come together, a nationalist prime minister, an anniversary which stimulates a reaction because critics have impugned the honour and efficiency and, and, and courage of Australian soldiers. Now I have to take a very brief detour here and say that, that the word that is used in the Wavell report and in all the the, the, the publicity was deserters. And I think we need to take a close look at that, that word because, as many of you would expect here, um, deserters, uh, I would regard a deserter as a person who leaves the front line deliberately in order to escape, uh, who seeks to, to, to evade their duty. I think we could also use the word stragglers, men who are disoriented, who leave combat confused or lost. But deserters was always the word used. And in the end, I don't think it matters because either strag both stragglers and deserters are not in the front line fighting and it's the expectation that Australians of course would be in the front line fighting which underpins the Australian reaction. Well, what reaction? One of the most vociferous rebuttals came in the splendidly titled book Cruel Britannia, Britannia Waves the Rules which was... <laughs> I'll read that again, it's a wonderful title Cruel Britannia, Britannia Waves the Rules. It's brilliant. A polemic, and a very fierce polemic, by two survivors of both the fall of Singapore and of captivity under the Japanese. So these were two men who were regarded as having every right to speak, Ray Connolly and Bob Wilson. And of course they were outraged by what they saw as a bogus document. Their anger at the Wavell report was because it is a really painful experience, they wrote, to hear your valiant dead comrades spoken of in this manner. And they regarded the report as based on lies or distortions collected from a group of British malcontents. You can see the battle lines lining up here, and the Japanese are not on one side or another. The Japanese are observing this. This is a, a fight between Australia and Britain. At best, Connolly and Wilson conceded, while it is true that some Australians were drunk and brawling and determined to escape, most men absent from the units were unwitting absentees, what I've just described as stragglers. And they said they numbered less than 20 in a 1,000. Well, less than 20 in 1,000 gets you about 45 men or something. So clearly, there's a, you can see how the two sides are lining up. Elphick's saying there's thousands of Australian deserters and stragglers, and Ray Connolly and Bob Wilson claim that there's 50. 
Well, the argument over the Wavell Report reflected not just what happened in 1942, but what Australians half a century on felt about what was the most contentious episode in imperial military history, and what they felt about the image of Australians, uh, Australians' own image of their soldiers' reputation. And the argument goes on, 13 years on from those initial headlines, in a website which has only just been uh, released. Australian partisans, notice will be a tenacious non-institutional historian called Lynette Silver, are still defending Australia's honour. So Lynette Silver concludes her long, detailed defence, her rebuttal of this, as 50 years on, the 8th Australian Division had indeed become scapegoats for the bloody empire. See, this is the sort of language people are using about this, this case. And the problem is, of course, that their contributions to this debate are seriously coloured by their, their sense of nationalism. And the problem is, is that the evidence shows that Elphick actually is right. The Wavell report appears to reflect reality much more than do Lynette Silver or those two veterans. And in fact, the evidence has always been available in, in documents, in the public domain, in the Australian War Memorial, that substantially corroborate Elphick's claims. Well, the Australian official history of the period covering the Japanese conquest of Southeast Asia, the Japanese thrust, appeared in 1957, as did the relevant British volume. But neither the Australian author, a journalist, Lionel Wigmore, nor his British counterpart, Brigadier Woodburn Kirby, dealt in any detail with the claims that Australians or, or any combatants had deserted in large numbers. Nor did they refer to the Wavell Report, although it seems both were, were aware of it. So the allegations over deserters at Singapore has always been a sensitive subject, and the official historians dealt with it by not dealing with it. But if you look at the papers of Lionel Wigmore, the Australian official historian, you'll find that it contains extensive correspondence with senior Australian and other officers. Some of the problems of writing that volume because it dealt with the defeats and the disasters of 1942, was that much of the expected official records, orders, signals, reports, often witnesses, were missing, and the defeat made all involved sensitive about their reputations. So Lionel Wigmore's correspondents were anxious to renovate both the historical record, but also to renovate their reputations. And the relationship was complicated because Gordon Bennett, the commander of the Australians on Singapore, the 8th Australian Division, was widely hated within his own formation, a fact that few of his informants troubled to hide, and even more, he knew that aggrieved individuals, including Gordon Bennett, would sue for defamation should the official historian make incautious disclosures, however soundly they were based in fact. Under Australian defamation law, it doesn't matter if something's true. If it's defamatory, uh, large damages could be awarded. As a result, Lionel Wigmore pulled his punches. It's very clear in comparing the text of his drafts his correspondence and the published text that he moderated his conclusions very substantially. And the deserter situation, as Peter Elphick called it, demonstrates this. In Lionel Wigmore's correspondence are letters from Colonel John Thayer, who was Gordon Bennett's chief administrative officer, the, the officer responsible for the administration of the Australian troops in, in Malaya, Singapore. And he wrote to Wigmore in 1952 to comment on the manuscript of what became the Japanese threat, the thrust. Discussing the extent of straggling, as he called it, among the Australians on Singapore in the week before the surrender, Thayer admitted this. The digger, the soldier, the digger was very much disgraced in Singapore. At the end, the perimeter was manned by only a proportion of the force. The remainder were in funk holes, huddling with natives on the seafront, drunk in cafes. Don't forget the episode of the Empire Star. Stragglers, or deserters, take your pick, many described as Australians, forced their way aboard the Empire, the liner, the liner Empire Star, among civilian evacuees and wounded, 
And this event is widely documented both in primary and secondary sources. It's certainly widely documented by Peter Elphick, although it didn't get into the Australian official history. Lionel Wigmore decided to omit sensitive and embarrassing episodes. So while they differ on details and especially numbers, the contemporary sources abundantly substantiate Thayer's view. The war diary of the Divisional Military Police Company, for example, recorded on the 14th of February, the day before the surrender, more and more soldiers in Singapore, morale very low, all imaginable excuses being made to avoid returning to the line. And who can blame them? But the fact is, is that they were out of the line, not in the line. But what proportion were actually straggling or deserting? Well, Thayer estimated that they numbered about 7,000, or about half of the Australians on the island. Neither this figure nor Thayer's comment appeared in Wigmore's history. And when in 2002 the allegations about the deserter situation recurred in an ABC television documentary, Peter Elphick was interviewed and, it has to be said, presented in a very poor light because Australians as a, as a whole and the ABC television uh, documentary makers did not want Australians to be faced with claims, as Thayer put it, that the digger was very much disgraced. So you can see how the fall of Singapore confronts Australians with a problem in seeing their soldiers who are universally regarded as efficient and courageous and, and, and good as being very much disgraced. It sticks Australians with a problem of self-image. But it actually is irrelevant to the matter of the fall of Singapore because the number of deserters did not really uh, explain Singapore's fall. Arguably, Singapore fell because successive governments, British and Australian, had since the early 1920s failed to think clearly about Singapore's place in imperial defence. This is the conclusion of every account of the saga, at least since Gordon Bennett's self-exculpatory Why Singapore Fell was published in 1944. And as Roger Lewis, historian of British strategy in the Far East, knows better than anyone here, Singapore fell because of inadequacies in British decisions. And that's also made much of in Australia. Very few Australians have any sympathy at all for the dilemma, uh, the imperatives that, that played upon the British government in deciding how Singapore should be constructed or reinforced. So Australians are really only interested in the outcome of the battle, but they're particularly interested to, to renovate their reputations in that. More immediately, of course, the reason for the collapse of British imperial resistance on Singapore Island itself can be seen in divided command between uh, an ineffective British commander, General uh, Sir Arthur Percival, whose dispositions and decisions during the battle were, were questionable, uh, but also to Gordon Bennett, the Australian commanders, who, who um, was at loggerheads with his brigade commanders, uh, was an abrasive personality who could not get on with, with uh, Arthur Percival, made bad decisions, and really contributed to the failure of his own troops on Singapore. That, too, didn't come out very clearly in the official history in 1957, although it has been exposed in Brett Lodge's book, The Fall of Gordon Bennett. Um, and now everyone accepts that, that, oh no, sorry, that's not true. And now those who are investigated may accept that Australians were responsible for, for that collapse in the line. Um, so in a sense, British critics such as Peter Elphick are right. Australians were arguably responsible for allowing the Japanese to seize the island's reservoirs, reservoirs which made capitulation in inevitable. And the presence of hundreds, if not thousands, of disoriented and leaderless men behind the lines, irrespective of whether they engaged in acts of indiscipline, is therefore largely irrelevant to the outcome of the battle. As I say, Singapore was lost in the, the financial pairing of the Treasury in London between the wars, or in the minds of the defenders' commanders during the battle. Um, the, the, the deserter question really isn't that central. 
but the controversy is highly central, is highly relevant to the, to the Australian understanding of its image and its relationship to Britain in the final decades of the 20th century and into the present century. Seemingly across an ideological spectrum, across generations and across political allegiance, Australians increasingly venerate those who served in the Second World War. And we can judge this in many ways, from the tone and the number of these populist history books that are appearing, the numbers who attend the annual Anzac Day commemoration marches and services in towns right across the nation. Um, Australians want to believe in their troops in, in, in wartime. They, they want to believe that they did well on all occasions. They want to believe they're the finest fighting men that the world has seen. And evidence about deserters and stragglers in Singapore directly challenges that. Let me give you an, an instance of the type of rhetoric which is applied. Uh, one of the, a very recent populist book uh, called Tobruk, about the, the siege of Tobruk in North Africa in 1941, has been written by a sporting journalist, Peter Fitzsimons. Uh, in it, he extols Australia's uh, courage and endurance in holding this North African port through 1941 against the Italians and the, and the Germans. And he denigrates the British for their ineffectual command in North Africa, even though the siege was a success. And here is the terms in which he, he uh, describes uh, the British. He attacks what he calls pommy puffter officers, a bunch of woolly woofters. <laughs> now, to appreciate exactly how offensive that is, you need a grasp of homophobic Australian slang, but you probably get the idea. It's typical of the, the tone of populist criticism of Britain. And amongst those most highly regarded veterans, among of all the veterans that Australians venerate, those who survived three and a half years of captivity under the Japanese are amongst the most, most revered. Australians don't want to hear that Australians were capable of leaving their places in the forefront of battle, and especially that these men uh, let the side down. They do not countenance claims by British authors based on British sources that these men behaved as men will under the stress of battle. These things happened, but Australians don't want to recognise them. Now, I'm arguing that it's clear now that that 1992 anniversary and the 1993 controversy over the Wavell Report marks a decisive point in Australia's understanding of its history. It marks the shift from a lack of interest in the Pacific War to embracing 1942 and the Japanese threat as the focus of the entire war. Most importantly, the anniversary of the fall of Singapore marked a fulcrum of popular understanding in which Australians across generations and political spectrums changed their minds about these events and their significance. I'm arguing that as a whole, Australians abandoned the traditional respect and sympathy for Britain. They now explicitly deprecate Britain's part in the Second World War and they generally boost their own experience unduly. They see the fall of Singapore, as John Curtin put it, as the beginning of a battle for Australia. So it seems that the fall of Singapore has opened a battle for Australia in the sense that it now forms the basis of a parochially Australian understanding of its past and its relationship to Britain. So what's the current state of debate, just to close? The idea of a battle for Australia is, it seems, now uh, eradicably entrenched in popular memory. Australia Post, the post office, issued stamps marking a Battle for Australia anniversary in September 19, in 2002. Now, in the first week of September, commemorative ceremonies are held in state capitals and in the grounds of the Australian War Memorial, although the memorial's director doesn't agree with the idea of it being elevated to being a national day. It makes the politics between the memorial, the bureaucracy, the executive, and particularly the Governor-General's office, particularly sensitive. Now, I'm glad I left the country for it, actually, because... <laughs>
and I may have to apply for asylum. But just today, I received an email from a colleague at work who just said that the, on Wednesday, the Governor General, Major General Michael, Michael Jeffrey, described the battle for Australia as a four-year struggle against Japan's efforts to invade Australia. You can see how dramatically that, that change has occurred. Now the Governor General can make those sort of statements and nobody seems to mind. So, except me. When I published articles last year arguing that Australians exaggerate the crisis of 1942 and in contesting the parochialism of that approach, I attracted virulent criticism, privately, in newspaper correspondence columns and on talkback radio. People demanded that I be dismissed from my position and challenged my citizenship and my loyalty to Australia. But this paper isn't about me. It's about the significance of those contending ideas in shaping an understanding of Australia's past. Last April, in the days preceding Anzac Day, a new player entered the debate. Stephen Barton is a tutor, uh, I think you'd call him a teaching fellow, at Edith Cowan University in Perth. And he contributed an opinion piece to the Australian newspaper. He argued, as I had argued, that the Japanese threat has been exaggerated in popular mythology. And the response to his piece was savage. The leader of the opposition, Kim Beasley, decried Barton's attempts to take 1942 out of the Australian legend. Officials of the influential Returned and, and Services Leave at the National Veterans Organization denounced Barton, claiming that he had denigrated the memory and sacrifice of those who fought the Japanese. In an interview on the Australian, the ABC current, current Affairs program, Late Line, the normally urbane and rational Tony Jones attacked Barton. Surely there was a role for nationalism at a time when Australia was under direct threat of invasion, uh, Tony Jones demanded. And this is exactly the nub of the argument. Increasingly, Australians see a role for nationalism in historical understanding. The fall of Singapore has become a decisive point in the development of a nationalist interpretation of Australian history. It explicitly denies that Australia is a part of the British world. That nationalist view does not countenance a disinterested view of Britain's part in the disaster, nor an honest treatment of the deserter situation in Singapore, nor a balanced view of the battle for Australia. In rejecting, in not even wanting to hear a disinterested account of their military history, Australians in employ all imaginable excuses, just like the stragglers on Singapore Island. This time, the battle for Australia is real, and Australians seeking a dispassionate understanding of their history are, it seems, losing that battle too. Thank you. I look forward to your comments and questions. Thank you.